You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Grand Rising and good morning to everybody out there. Welcome to the Morning Update Show. I'm your co-host, Trey Holiday, And of course, we got another wonderful Wednesday show up for you today. It's always wonderful when I'm in the Black Media Matter studios with my co-host, Big O. What up, Big O? Hey, how are you, my friend? Yeah, happy Wednesday to you. Yes. I'm actually I'm doing great. You know, yesterday was was a busy, busy day for us here. Yeah. Of course, we did the morning update show. They were out there at Mohai for about four hours uh, <laughs> shooting in Mohai, and you know, I was I was surprised they had the everyday heroes display out there, mm. and from a few years ago. Um, I was there, you know, so I saw myself. I walked in there and there, there I am on the wall in the video plan from Everyday Heroes of Mohai. Then we did Community Voices, uh, Vaccine Hesitancy, A Black Perspective. And that was hosted by Basa Gordon. And we, we had Corey Strozier, who is a school board member in the, the city of Tacoma. And then we also had uh, Dr. John Bossel and uh, Pastor Lawrence Willis. So it was a great discussion there. Then we rounded off the evening, the truth with proof. Let me tell you, a star is born. The truth with proof, man. It was a fun time here last night. You had fun last night, Curtis? Yeah. Yeah, did you get one of the hot link corn dogs? <laughs> yeah, Sean Thomas. Oh, I did take two. Sean Thomas had the hot link corn dogs here. You had uh, Jay Fresh. You had... Um, Daisha was here with with her clothing line, legalized blackness. You had a comedian, Armani Jones, and then I had the the fortune of being Proof's very first guest on his very first episode. So man, it was a lot of high energy in the studio last night. Oh my gosh, I am loving it. You know, Proof has been talking about doing a show. I'm just so glad to see it come to fruition. Shout out to you, Proof, and everybody who was here last night to celebrate with you. You know, I hit him up before. I said, man, just kill it, man, tonight. Just kill it. He's like, hey, sis, we in here. Let's go. So great energy all around. I love that. Busy night indeed, oh. Yeah, no, for sure. Good show lined up for you today. Actually, great show lined up, man. We got Brian Callanan in the building. Brian Callanan from the Seattle Channel and also Seattle News, Views, and Brews, which is on tonight at 7 p.m. here on Converge. And then I believe we're going to have Mike Davis from the South Seattle Emerald. He's going to be popping in a little later in the show. Yeah, right on, man. Great show indeed. Yeah. So let's get to it, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to the Morning Update Show. I want to remind you that right now is the perfect time for you to tag and share the stream. Go ahead and tag and share the stream with people you feel would appreciate culturally relevant news and information emanating from right here in the Emerald City. Want to give a big shout out to our partners over at the South Seattle Emerald and also KBCS 91.3 over at Bellevue College. You can listen to the Morning Update Show anywhere that you listen to your favorite podcast, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Google. All you have to do is search Converge Media Network. Um, time right now, remind people about culturally relevant information uh, around COVID-19 vaccine. A lot of information came out last night here for us, why.org. Um, you can go ahead and visit that website right there. Um, if 
especially it's, it's curated towards people who might be hesitant. There's also a lot of other information that's on there about booster shots. And if someone still wants to, to get the vaccine um, as well as testing information. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing a lot of people uh, go to this site and get the information that they're looking for. So again, if you are out there with questions, um, you know, hopefully you were able to catch that episode last night of Community Voices, but this is a recurring uh, resource for you as well. Here for us, Wild.org. Check it out. Yep. All right. So uh, you, we had um, director Markham McIntyre here yesterday from the Department of Economic Development. We got an overlay going up right now. This is the Capital Access Program. Well, Curtis Delgado II, Cuddy, will put the, the link in the comments over there. We got Cuddy directing today. Yeah, huh? yeah. It's been a minute. Welcome back, Curtis. <laughs> uh, he's putting a link in the comments there. This closes on the 8th. And Triana, you had an opportunity yesterday to to talk more in depth about this program, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ken Takahashi was able to talk about his role as a commercial affordability uh, director and to hear what he was talking about in terms of some of the things that they're doing to be, you know, uh, impactful in communities, particularly communities that are normally uh, not able to take advantage of these funds. And, you know, I was asking them some pretty tough questions, in my opinion, about hey, what are you really doing to ensure that this money is hitting those communities? And while they're not able to specifically direct money there, they are going to have kind of this randomized process that they've used in the past that apparently does, you know, get it to, you know, a mixed crowd, I guess. So we'll see how this pans out. Oh, all right. Well, yeah. I mean, one. Uh, making money accessible to small businesses. I think everybody could agree on that. And, you know, being able to, to lower the barrier to entry is important. Um, I mean, it's substantial amounts. Some, sometimes at this point, people are so deep in the hole that applying for $5,000 probably, you know, if especially if it takes the same amount of time as applying for 150000 you know, um, so it's, it's a substantial amounts there, low interest rates, everything else. The one thing that I talked to uh, Director Markham about, or McIntyre about was it's like, let's let's hope that we don't get left behind, you know. And I will say, you know, I mean, coming here, they, they were hitting us up like, hey, we, we definitely need to let the black community know what's going on. I believe they launched the program. We said they're the, the link project on union. But um you know, I mean, far too often and a lot of times, man, we, we are left behind. So if you're out there, small business, if you have a small business or a friend with a small business, man, definitely sh click the link or share the link in the comments. We want to be able to get the word out for people to take advantage of it because, you know, far too often resources come out and, you know, we we don't take advantage. Yeah. Absolutely. And this is exactly why I think anytime we hear about resources right here at Converge in the Black Media Matter Studios, we're going to ask those questions about how it's going to impact black people. I think that's important for us to do because oftentimes those questions don't get asked. Oh, so I, I'm glad to hear some of the ways that they're trying to make sure that these resources are hitting black community. But also he was talking about these advocates that are out there to to make sure that, you know, uh, businesses uh, of the global majority 
majority are aware of these funds because oftentimes it's just not hitting our community in that regard. So even if the funds come out, it's like they get a low uh, amount of people that are applying from our community. So I think that's also key to this as well. Right. Emily Stockman had a, a question in the comments. What's considered low interest? I believe the interest rate, they're talking about 4%. Yeah, 4%. Yeah. Yeah. So for for in <laughs> Compared compared to some of the stuff you see online, <laughs> they want your soul. Yeah, <laughs> they want high interest. They want your soul. So four four percent uh, interest rate there. Capital access program, and you know I I liked Director McIntyre's kind of response, and we're gonna hold it to him. He was like, "Man, I said, listen, you talking about uh, you're the you're the office of economic development." And one of our big things here at Converge is the fact that the lack of economic drivers in our community and in our neighborhood. And they said the majority, I don't know if Brian saw this, the majority of people in Seattle make over a hundred thousand or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It, it's like, it's a, it's a, you know, I mean, and we're, we're lagging far behind, you know, so, so when people talk about really wanting to do economic uplift of the black community, so then my ears go up like, oh, word. So, you know what I'm saying? We're, we're going to, we definitely want to keep our eye on that office in a good way. They yeah. said that their intentions are good. And man, if they're doing things for our community and they want to uplift and amplify, man, we're all here for it. But Absolutely. we got to keep our eye on the ball. <laughs> um, oh, okay. So this is good. So next week, is beloved week right here on Converse. It's a takeover from the team from beloved King County. All next week, we got guests in here, all kinds of artists and advocates, probably a few politicians, but um, people who are in the space or in the ecosystem out there trying to disrupt gun violence here in the city of Seattle and King County. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I mean, we've been hearing about some of the unique ways that the Beloved campaign has really been approaching uh, communications around gun violence. And I know that there's a, a lot of people really pouring into this effort. So I'm excited to be able to, you know, have this kind of takeover next week oh, and see how many folks we can get in here next week and really give us more information and insight on all the things they have going on. Yeah, no, for sure. We should have a, a lineup of guests here, later on today or tomorrow and so letting everybody know it's a big week to turn in uh tune in next week for beloved the beloved takeout in the in the in the building all right so yesterday um you know we were like i said we were busy all day yesterday and so i didn't see the news but apparently opa the office of police accountability they put out their report. It's this annual report about, you know, how many complaints, complaints that were made against them, everything else. Matt Markovich, who was at Como, who's now at Channel 13, he had called me because he was doing a segment and they wanted to use the pink umbrella footage. So I'll let you guys know that Matt, Matt did call me into people because people be hitting me like, yo, big O, yo, I see your footage over there. You know what I'm saying? But uh, but Matt Markovich had, had reached out and he has actually made me aware of this. So. Uh, and so we're going to actually play this clip. Uh, it's just a few seconds of the pink umbrella. And so I just always like to let people know. But basically, the number of complaints are down, but disproportionately, 20 percent of the complaints against the Seattle Police Department are made by black people who only make up 7 percent of the population. Yeah, this is a significant for quite a few people. That includes politicians, police, pundits, and the public and its perception of the police. 
Let's bring this down. It would come to be known as the pink umbrella incident. When a protester prods an SPD officer with a pink umbrella and the crowd being barricaded from the East Precinct is met with a barrage of pepper spray and later tear gas from SPD in 2020. Chief Adrian Diaz would later go on against a recommendation by the Office of Police Accountability to discipline the officer who gave the order to pepper spray and tear gas. It's the fourth time a chief had done so in four years, so it's rare. It was the only time last year Diaz would not follow an OPA recommendation. Hold on, watch out, he's got a knife. The OPA's annual report categorizes all citizen complaints against SPD and says last year there were nearly 3,000 contacts made by the public one in five made allegations of unprofessional conduct. But use of force allegations were down 61% from 2020, the year of chop and protests. And a quarter of all allegations, 185, the OPA said were valid. Unprofessionalism was the biggest allegation made. The use of force was fourth. But half of sworn officers, 461 of a year in total of 958, had received at least one complaint. As for officer punishment, most received a written reprimand and two were terminated flat out and didn't quit for allegations the OPA had sustained. You know why? Because Those two were fired after they participated in the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, the chief making good on a promise. If OPA finds any evidence, any officers were directly involved, they will be fired and the information will be shared with federal officials. The city council member whose committee oversees SPD says, I am concerned that the racial disproportionality in OPA cases has continued to increase over previous years, citing 20% of the complaints coming from African-Americans, but they represent only 7% of Seattle's population. And in a statement from SPD, the department says it's encouraged by the decline in use of force allegations. A spokesperson for the mayor's office declined to comment on the report. I'm Matt Markovich, Fox 13 News. Well, it would be interesting to understand what they're going to be, how they're going to be able to utilize this data. I mean, we've seen reports come out. I think that there is something to be said here about, you know, okay, there's a decline in use of force, but that 461 officers did receive at least one complaint also says something too about this culture that we talk about in policing. So, you know, it would be interesting. I mean, you know, to hear actually from Mayor Harrell's office with regard to how they're going to utilize this data, uh, We've been talking about some of his approaches around cleaning up the streets, having police out there on 12th and Jackson. I keep seeing them out there. Oh, but but it's interesting that this report comes out. And I, I wonder what they're really going to do with the data. <laughs> Man. Yeah, well, first of all, it's from OPA. That was an intentional pause. Uh, <laughs> but um yeah, I mean, what we see right there, and this was like this where you saw Lisa Herbold commented on there that, you know, 20 percent. And, you know, in in this in the legal justice system here, everything is this disproportionality. When you go over there to municipal court, you know, with the tickets written and the citations written and the this and that and everything else or into complaints. Uh, I'll be honest with you. You know, I, w I would venture to think that the actual complainants are probably there's a lot of people who are just like, whatever. You know what I'm saying? They just don't file a complaint. Um, but we'll see. Um, you know, I mean, of course, use of force coming down is, is good anywhere. Right. Um, I think that 
that's something that's, that's definitely notable with the reduction of the use of force in the city. But yeah, 20% of all complainants, black people, 7% of the population. Well, I think there's also something to be said. I mean, you're talking about OPA and, and honestly, we have really seen, um, you know, the distrust kind of grow, honestly, and maybe it's their ineffectiveness. So the idea is that maybe some people have been like, man, they ain't going to do nothing anyway. You know, what's the point of me reporting? I mean, I also wonder how much of that is out there in terms of the sentiment of the people, because we've actually seen firsthand that, you know, they can put out these reports. They don't have to enforce anything. Chief uh, Diaz so is able I, to not take their recommendations. I mean, this is something that also plays into it. I, I'll be clear. And, you know, granted, this report most likely is, is tabulated on statistical data and which can also be like twisted up some. But, you know, let's just take it on its face, the face, you know, face value statistics. And they've compiled it here into this report. But, you know, in my in my book, OPA lost a lot of credibility around that Proud Boy hoax case. A lot of credibility when they said, oh, there's nothing else involved. And it turns out that they were over there at the emergency uh, command center and all these other people knew about what was going on and everything else. But the OPA report didn't speak to that because they were like, oh, well, our job is to only look at the officers. And I'm just like, man, and, you know, I mean, I just be clear. I said it that day that it's like, OPA has a very big, the whole ecosystem, to be honest with you, the police accountability ecosystem has a real big issue with, with people taking them credible, Yeah, you know, and, and that, that proud boy case kind of blew it wide open. It blew it wide open 100% that are like, yo, you guys didn't check in. The city was under basically a state of emergency and you didn't check in with the emergency center about this whole thing over here. So, you know, when stuff comes over and I read from OPA, I'm like, you know, I used to read those whole big reports and we go through every page and everything. But I'm just like, man, we'll see. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, but, I, you know, it's just. I mean, and the other thing about this, though, man, I know we got guests, so I won't go on some big old rant here. But the other thing about this is just the lack of don't care. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was wide open. It was like, man, OPA didn't do this. They didn't do that. They didn't do whatever. And, you know, Meyerberg, he works for the mayor now. He's he's like director of public safety over there. You know what I'm saying? And so, I mean, I, I guess like they say these guys, they just they keep going forward, you know? Um, so anyways, <laughs> yeah. Uh, lots to be said about this, to be honest with you, because I'm wondering if that has something to do with the, the mayor's office, not really wanting to comment. I mean, you took in director Meyerberg at a time where, you know, honestly, his credibility was really shot. And a lot of people uh, throughout the protest movement even have been like, what is OPA's job? I think that it really can't became clear as the public was beginning to interact um, and interface with OPA more so uh, during the protest movement and to be like, wow, you know, Chief Diaz doesn't even have to take your recommendation. Like, oh, all you're able to do is give recommendations when you say your, you know, Office of Police Accountability. What does that really look like? So I think you're absolutely right, though. Yeah, the whole man, the whole ecosystem. Uh, and this is what we need. And nobody. And here's here's the other thing is it's crazy because, you know, and so I was reading some stuff here today and they're talking about, you know, the number of officers that are left. And there's a lot of officers that are left, but they always keep tracking it up 
to defund, right? Oh, it's the defund movement. I've talked to a lot of officers who said they didn't sign up for that. They didn't sign up to gas neighborhoods. They didn't sign up to just randomly shoot rubber bullets at people day after day. It's a lot of people who didn't sign up for that. What about the officers who did the Proud Boy hoax and left the police force? And they're probably in some other police force here in the Puget Sound. And they probably they, they, did, a, they did a hoax on the good citizens of Seattle. They had all these city departments running around scrambling because they thought the Proud Boys was coming. These guys lead a force. And they go get hired. But on their exit interview, they probably left like, oh, defund made us. <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Leave. I think that a fair assessment would be is that a lot of officers have left the city of Seattle for varying reasons. But they always want to throw it into this defund pot. Yeah. Like, man, you work for the public. If the public is showing a displeasure with you. So now what? You quit? Yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying? Anyways, uh, let me let me let me uh, keep it pushing here. I know we got Mike Davis in the green room. We got a handcrafted uh, motion graphic for my brother. Put it up over here. There he is. Mike Davis, reporter, South Seattle Emerald. He's coming our way next right here on the morning update show. As a non-binary black femme, a lot of my identity is rooted in body. Once the vaccine was introduced, it was really difficult to think in terms of safety as well as autonomy. As a black American, the relationship with government is very complicated. It's hard to trust. A lot of these conspiracies are really impacting people making a decision, especially with black folks to be clear about what we're doing. I think it's just a well-rounded conversation to see what's best for us. All right. Welcome back to the morning update show. And you see right there, Seattle News, Views and Brews tonight, seven o'clock. Check that out. We've actually got Brian Callen coming up later in the show. But right now, Mr. Delgado, please bring in Mike Davis. Hey, what's up? Hey, Mike. What's, what's up, going brother? on, brother? Oh, what's up, Okay, now I can see both of y'all. Hey, that was How a, are you? I'm good, man. That was a that was a good conversation y'all was having. I hope it didn't stop on account of me. <laughs> uh, no. Well, well, so so what what are your thoughts, um, Mike Davis, when when we talk about this, the, the OPA report here and he says that 20 uh, percent of the complaints were by black people and black people make up seven percent of the population. I mean, it's not surprising. I think that that's something that we already knew. I think the more. Dang, I don't think this is surprising either, either. But just the fact that. We know what it is. We've been saying it. There's been plenty of statistical data to support that black people are disproportionately affected by use of force by police departments, not just in Seattle, but all through this country. The thing about it is, what is the police department going to do? And I think that when you look at Seattle in particular and you look at how powerful our police union is, and how they fight accountability tooth and nail, I think that that's really where a lot of these real issues lie. I think you make a good point. Oh, when you talk about like individual officers, they didn't all sign up for all of this. Not all of them are down with this. But I mean, where is the power to actually make change that we'll see in the and, future? And this is this is where city leaders are quiet. 
because all the power sits in the spa contract, yes. right? And everybody wants to dance around that and they want to dance around it, but accountability sits in the spa contract. Trey Holiday, you talked about the, um, the, the recommendations that OPA makes. Again, Chief D has a lot of his stuff bound by the spa contract, accountability bound by the spa contract. So many things, the, the, the subpoena power that, that OPA was supposed to have that, that got negotiated away in the OPA contract, the, the, the OPA and, and the spa contract, the OPA and the OIG are both supposed to be much stronger organizations, but Seattle negotiated away accountability in the police contract. And then they they come for accountability at every turn, even when we look at like the process of these inquests, like we just seen uh, the Demarius Butts case and all of those officers, of course, were found uh, that the use of force was justified. But that's a case where you had multiple police officers get shot. So that wasn't surprising. But what I'm waiting to see with these inquests and what our police union is fighting against was they didn't want police officers to be forced to testify because they were worried that those testimonies could be used against police and they could be found criminally liable. They totally ignore the fact that these are cases in which use of force led to a citizen losing their life. And instead of looking for accountability for the officers that may have killed a citizen, instead you got the police officers guild fighting to make sure that police don't have to testify. And when you look at those inquests and you look at the actual language in there, it says that police officers can be compelled to testify, not that police officers are required to testify. So in this past inquest, yes, you have police officers testify because you had a suspect that shot and wounded police officers. But when we talk about cases like Charlene Lyles, for example, when that inquest comes, are we even going to be able to have police officers testify? And if we don't have police officers testify, it's going to come right back to the police officers union and our inability to take any real steps to hold police officers accountable. Look, Mike, this is exactly I mean, everything we're talking about. These are the nuts and bolts of why there is mistrust of the police force. And again, it goes back to the culture of the police force. Let's be real here that this has really been since the inception of a police force at all in this country. There's always been this level of protection for police that doesn't expand out to the citizens. And unfortunately, when we think in our heads, look, they're there to serve the public. Like they're there to serve us. No, they have a whole other thing going on. And it's really culturally rooted in police forces all across this country, Mike. And this is exactly why so many people, particularly those from the global majority and in black communities, are the ones to be like, man, I don't know. I don't trust nothing that's going on. So again, it goes back to OPA. They really had an opportunity to try to disrupt a lot of that ideology out there of us not trusting the police. But unfortunately, because of things like the spa contract and these inquests that you're talking about, Mike. Hey, that stuff is alive and well in OPA as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, real, real, real quick, Mike. I mean, OPA is, is in a position, I mean, it's, it's set up, it's it's watered down. So here's the thing is, the, the, the CPC years ago, it worked with this to the, the create this, this ecosystem here, and these partners are supposed to be strong. They're supposed to have some muscle because you need muscle for accountability. 
You know what I'm saying? You need muscle for accountability. And what happened is, is the muscle in the police accountability ecosystem was negotiated away. And I'm wondering, waiting to see here, who in City Hall is really going to step forward on this? Because you know what? Sure, the, the police, like any other employee in the city of Seattle, deserves a fair contract. But so do the citizens of Seattle. We, the people deserve a fair contract and these guys keep negotiating away and they put the citizens in a situation a week that there's no other there is no other situation where where we the people are our power is negotiated away this is what's happened here when you think about this contract here right we the people the citizen stakeholders our power has been negotiated away no, you're you're absolutely right. And, and I hate too. sometimes like we're seeing a big rise in like the labor movement right now. We're seeing unions emerge at Amazon and unions emerge at Starbucks. And then sometimes the conservatives disingenuously try to lump the police unions into these same conversations. But it should definitely be separate. I mean, the police union, we're talking about people's lives right now. We're talking about officers who are armed, who have people's lives literally in their hands. We can't just keep letting them get more and more power and less and less accountability. If anything, they should have the most accountability because they literally, I mean, this is life and death. And then when you look at those statistics that we see and we look at how it disproportionately affects the black community, it affects brown communities. I mean, this is a huge problem. And how can we ever build trust if we can never get to a place of accountability? And then when you have like the OPA and then you have the co-mingling with the politicians and then you got Meyerberg and now he works for the mayor. I mean, none of this looks good to the public. So what are we supposed to do as citizens if we can't feel safe in our streets? Absolutely, Mike. This is exactly why, you know, when we see this statistical data come out, there's always going to be these measures of statistical data that are unseen. And one of those things is, you know, people saying, man, screw OPA. They're going to do nothing anyway. If I'm the one that has somebody, you know, use excessive force on me or my family, what is going to happen if I put a report out there? What is going to happen if I try to make sure that they're hold, held accountable? Too often do we see that there is no accountability and too often as Omari is pointing out we see that the strength when it comes to community uh, oversight when it comes to this OPA uh, this other kind of oversight we just see that it doesn't really have any real effect I mean oftentimes um, in any of these entities what we also see is that they are able to do their own investigations or their own kind of research and data gathering and then give recommendations that then have to be accepted by the police force ultimately. And this is the problem. Oh, is that none of this is a required thing that needs to happen before you even get to the recommendation part. Like, come on, man. You know, if you really talk to people, inside that ecosystem and inside of OPA, man, they'll tell you, you know, these guys, you know, I, I'll say this, I can't prove this. And so <laughs> about the record said, I can't prove this through third party conversation of people who are in that ecosystem. These guys is talking to each other in a departmentally all the time, sharing information all the time. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's this is the way it's a broken system and nobody is sitting here talking about. Well, some people are. So I won't say nobody. But man, how do you fix the overall system? And one of the main things in fixing the system, this system has one epicenter 
And that's the spark contract. And that's what needs to be addressed. And until people take that head on and demand accountability for the citizens of Seattle, then we're going to continuously find ourselves in this place. Mike Davis, uh, any comments on that? And then we'll talk about what you got coming up on the show. No, no, nah, man, you, you, you said it. But I, I will add when you say not enough people are talking. We're talking about it. Converge Media is talking about it. Oh, you're putting yourself in those rooms. You're having those relationships. And, and that brings it to this platform. And as long as we got Converge, these conversations will continue. So shout out to you and Trey for, for keeping that going and giving a platform to the actual truth and the perspectives of the people. And as for clapback culture, ironically, uh, I think the big story we're going to talk about today is that Florida police sergeant, man, there was a Florida police sergeant on camera trying to attack a black man who's handcuffed in the back of a police car. He has a female junior sergeant who's also on the scene. She has to physically grab him off of the handcuff guy. He turns around and grabs her by the throat and chokes her and threatens her in all sorts of ways. And I mean, that's literally tied to what we are just talking about. There has to be a way for the cops who are the good cops to actually have a pathway to make changes within policing. When we're getting videos like this, it matches up with a lot of stories that we already hear. Only difference is now we got a video and on Clapback Culture tonight, we're going to bring that video to the people. Well, no, tomorrow, right? Oh, Thursday. I'm so sorry. Thank you, Trey. Tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Tomorrow. Yeah. But, but you know what? I'm, I'm glad that you guys are dig digging into something like this because that's also, I'm going to bring it right back to police culture. This is not something that is unique to Seattle or to Washington State. This is something that is embedded in the culture in the United States of America. It is throughout our country. We're talking about officers in Florida. And we, we, we've we actually seen where the officers that are trying to do good, that are actually looking out for the citizens, they get reprimanded for trying to stop other officers from doing certain things. Or we see that bullying tactic that happens inside of the police force to those officers that are looking out for the citizens. Once again, this is a good old, hey, let's protect each other club. But when you have officers officers who enter the force and they really have the idea that, no, my job is to be there for these citizens. Let me stop you from doing something. Here we go. There's a whole nother uh, uh, police officers that are saying, man, why did you do that? Why did you try to pull him off? That's a real issue. And for this sergeant to think that he had the authority to then grab her by the neck. I'm telling you, this is exactly what I'm talking about, man. It's deeply rooted in the culture. It is. It's the culture. It's the culture of policing. And the problem with the culture of policing is it's so much easier for a bad cop to just slide being a bad cop than it is for a good cop trying to be a good cop. Because when you are that cop and you're speaking up against your colleagues, there's reprimand for that. There's repercussions for that. But when you're a cop and you're out here using force or you're doing these negative things, then you got a whole union and whole structures that are built to protect that negative behavior. So until we have actual pathways for the good cops to have an easy time being good cops the way that bad cops do, then we're always going to have this problem in the culture of policing. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll say this when you say a, a situation of bullying, intimidation, everything else. Man, you should talking to some black police officers here. You, you talk to them, ask them, 
they find there in the locker room or the or the comments or the this and that. Black police officers, man, they catch hell all the way around, not only in this police force, but all across America. You know what I'm saying? Huh. You know, I let them wear a Black Lives Matter shirt over over to the fort, but you know, guys in there rocking all the MAGA and everything else is it's deep. Mike Davis, please tell everybody how they can keep up with you. Man, clap back culture. We right here, clapping back. Thursday night, 7 p.m., me and Julia Jesse. Please, please come check us out. Wednesdays, I'm right here chilling with Owen Trey in the mornings. And then South Seattle Emerald, wherever you find the Emerald, I'm there too. All right. Always a pleasure, Mike. Man, thank you so much for contributing uh, some great bits to this conversation around police accountability. We appreciate you being with us. Thanks for having me, y'all. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, you know, Mike Davis. <laughs> uh, always. I mean, this is this is one of those things where I just love how our, you know, our issues overlap. And I love that right here on Converge, we have a wide variety of shows that can give these different perspectives, man, and dive in. I know Mike and Jules are going to do a deep dive on this story out of Florida. Yeah, no, for sure. We're going to take a quick break right now. When we come back, we are joined by... That's your cue, Mr. There he is, Brian Callanan. He's the host and moderator over the Seattle channel and also the host of Seattle News, Views, and Brews, which is airing tonight at 7 p.m. You're watching the Morning Update Show. All right, welcome back to the Morning Update Show. Join now on the set with Brian Callanan from the Seattle channel. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. Yeah. Good to be here, oh. Thanks for having me. Man, it's been a minute since we've been on set yeah, yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's good to see you. It's, nah, good, to see you. it's good to see you, too. Mm -hmm. So as usual, it's always good to have you on the show because you give us kind of an overview of what's going on over in City Hall and mm -hmm. city government. So what's yeah. up first? Well, I'm trying to play off a few things that Mike was talking about in that last segment there. One specifically here, the search for a new police chief for the city of Seattle. Mayor Harold talked about this at the end of last week. The process is really starting up this week. And Omari, the part that I'm concerned most about is really how transparent this process is going to be because it was not last time around, as you will well remember with Carmen Best. I'm really interested to see how this is going to play out because the mayor is talking about having a website where people can actually check out the whole process. He's saying it's going to be launched in a couple of weeks here. So we'll see what that's about. He's also saying he's going to get feedback from the public about this process too. But that transparency, I think, is super important here because I'm thinking about what happened with Carmen Best because as everybody will recall, she was not the first choice for Mayor Durkin. As a matter of fact, she wasn't even on that list of three that they had at that time back a couple of years ago. So how that process moves forward is very interesting to me. And also just who Seattle ends up going with. Is it someone inside the department? Is it outside the department? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that one, but this has been a very interesting for history for the city of Seattle. Do you bring in someone who's going to try to reform things? Do you bring in someone who might be on the same page with the mayor right now, which Adrian Diaz, you could potentially say is. Did you have some thoughts about that when we're talking about it on the podcast tonight? Yeah, so I got, I got quite a few thoughts on that. I think that what we what we saw with with Chief Best mm -hmm. when Chief Best came in here is I think Chief Best moved with a lot of assumptions okay. that the people that she put on her command staff had her and the city of Seattle's best intentions at heart. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Sure. I mean, that was a horrible mistake that Chief Best made. And we 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 see that. And that's how it played out. And also, the one thing about going on the inside is we know that there's problems on yeah. the inside. Right. And we know that people know how to exploit those problems on the inside. 
But, you know, I mean, so that's one thing when you mm-hmm. bring in somebody new. So people people know how this process goes. Usually yeah. you bring in a chief. It's not just the chief. It's almost like when uh, a football team hires sure. uh, a new head coach. coaches. Yeah. The, and they bring in their their offensive coordinator, mm-hmm. their defensive coordinator and all these things. So when you bring in a new chief, you're also bringing in his whole or her whole new command staff mm-hmm. and probably a lot of the deputy chiefs go down to a captain sure. to, to the rank of captain. Yeah. So now that might be good for this police force because these guys don't know. You know what I'm saying? They don't know yeah. nobody. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, 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 and so they'll, they'll come with a, a different kind of approach. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That might be what Seattle needs. It'll be interesting to look at this. I was looking back at some of the history of police chiefs in the Seattle police department. If you reach back to the year 2000, we had Gil Kurlikowski around. I don't know if you remember that name, but he was there for nine years in that position. And as the turnover happened there, he left for a federal job and John Diaz came in. Remember he was interim chief for a minute, but then mayor Mike McGinn at the time named him as the permanent chief. But Diaz went through a lot, the beginning of the consent decree process for one, the John Williams Woodcarver incident. That was a terrible situation there too. He ended up retiring from police work at the end of his term. Then we went through a couple of interim chiefs. You might remember we had Jim Pugil for a little bit. We ended up having uh, Harry Bailey for a little bit too. And then after that point, that's when we brought in someone from the outside, Kathleen O'Toole. And we're talking about a selection by former mayor Ed Murray at that point. She, of course, went through for several years there, but ended up leaving after about three years at the end of 2018. And that is when uh, Carmen Best came on the scene. And I think it's important to see that history. Right. And, you know, and a few things with with, with Chief Best, because, you know, we, we want to look at it through as many different lenses as possible. Uh-huh. 30 years ago. Mm. When it at the time it was uh, a mothers against police harassment, right? Was started th- three decades ago. The chief then Fitzsimmons told these black women, "Y'all need to go and and, and, and mind your business. Go mm-hmm. find you some husbands or something." Oh boy, that was the tone yeah. of the Seattle Police Department when people in our community stood up against police violence in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And you go forward thirty years. And then you get somebody like a Carmen Best. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, yes, community was like, yes, we want to see someone like Carmen Best because we went through the Fitzsimmons. We went through the weed and seed. We went through the jump out vans and everything else. So there was, you know, the the call for Carmen Best just didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of and somebody who had been in the community for a very long time in Mm -hmm. community. And like I said, I think that her Achilles heel is that she took people with her into that command staff that Mm -hmm. very much did not have her best interest or the city of Seattle's best interest at heart. Chief Diaz, somebody who's a long time. And, you know, when you leave this downtown corridor mm-hmm. and you go to South Seattle and some of these neighborhoods out sure. there and they'll tell you that Chief Diaz, way before he was chief, was out there walking yeah. the streets, mm-hmm. you know, uh, real respected. It becomes yeah. the nature of police officers, real respected in a lot of neighborhoods and community groups because mm-hmm. he's actually been out there yep. and everything else. And so, you know, in in, in one sense, um, in keeping Diaz as, as far as relationships mm-hmm. with, with different community and community groups, that's right. something that's there. But in but also the police force is much bigger yeah, than, than just right. our community and community issues. And I was going to say, too, that other piece to this whole deal. Do you bring someone from inside or outside? We're also talking about someone that has to deal with that Seattle Police Officers Guild deal, right? Because they have not had a contract now since the end of 2020. So do you need someone from the inside who 
I believe has the respect of Spog for the most part, or do you bring someone from the outside? How does that affect those negotiations? I think that's a huge part of this too. So yeah, and you might have a cheap that looks at that contract and is like, nah. Uh-huh. You know, you might have a potential cheap who come in here and they're like, well, man, Seattle's cool, but yeah, you know, I mean that 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 contract I think is is really gonna is gonna play a pivotal role in it. Did did uh, Mayor Harrell give a timeline of when he's trying to have a new chief? He, he it's it's uh, it sounds like it'll be by the end of this year. I think we have that in in line. What we're talking about over the next couple of weeks is setting up this public website where people can get their input, kind of watch the process going forward, and also a national firm. He's going to take on a national firm here to do this outreach project to make sure that we get a lot of different candidates coming in. He encouraged uh, Chief Adrian Diaz to apply. I know he's had some good uh, good interactions with him, uh, at least in terms of how the mayor and the SPD chief are, are working together here. So it sounds like this process is going to take a long time, but I really encourage people to really stay in touch with what the mayor is doing here. Watch with this website. Make sure you get some uh, public input here because that's a process that did not go well last time around with Chief Best when she was chosen for the job. Yeah, I mean it was it was it was definitely a fight. Yeah, you know one one hundred percent on Chief Best. Speaking of, and then mm. that's I don't know what your next topic is. Okay, but I just want <laughs> you to, tell me. All right, I just want to throw this out here <laughs> yeah. because when we talk about Mayor Harrell saying he's going to get back to us, and yeah. that's what you're saying yeah. with his website and everything. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, when Mayor Harrell had his press conference, uh, he was with, with, with uh, the all stars of law enforcement, say, yep. with the FBI and with the, the U.S. attorney and with the city attorney and the county attorney and everything. They talked about their crackdown on everything else. Yep. And the question that I asked Mayor Harrell was like, where's all your all stars for social services? Yeah. Where's your all stars for our community members who are out here and addicted to this deadly drug, fentanyl yeah. and everything yeah. else? Where yeah. are your all stars for the streets? And the mayor said that, hey, they're they're doing their inventory mm -hmm. and they're going to get back to us. Have you yeah. heard anything about that? They're stabilizing is what I've heard. Now, what I will say is I'm actually following up on this on Seattle Channel this week. We're bringing in a representative from the mayor's office. Actually, it's going to be Senior Deputy Mayor Harold that's going to be joining us there. We're also going to be bringing in the Downtown Seattle Association to talk about this and Lisa Dugard, who is an all-star from the Public Defenders Association, to try to get some answers to that very question because I have the same question too. And we did a lot of work out on Third Avenue over the past week here, taking some pictures, showing some of the different activity that's happening there because maybe some tents have been removed or whatever else, but still there's a lot of activity. And we've talked with business owners too, who are still in, in, enduring some issues there for sure. Yeah, I'm a business owner right here right. on First and yep. I endure the issues every day. Mm -hmm. But I do know this, is that one, these are our community members. And when I when I say community on this, I leave I, I say larger than black folks, black community. This, the city of Seattle, King County, these are our community members. Mm -hmm. You know, the, these are our sons and daughters, mm -hmm. mamas, even grandparents out yeah. there, some of these things. And so when we know that this is a this is a highly addictive drug yeah. and everything that the people are out there addicted to. The U.S. attorney spoke to that. Mm -hmm. The DEA spoke to that. Yeah. So we need to have that approach. And I say that because, again, going back three decades, there was no regard for for an equally uh, uh, addictive and deadly drug called crack. Yep. And, and the whole thing then was to criminalize mm -hmm. and lock up. 
what have we learned in 30 years? And so I, I like what they were talking about. They said, hey, they're, they're using all their resources yeah. there to interdict fentanyl from reaching the streets of Seattle. Got okay, yeah. great, one part. But what about our community members yeah. who are out there? Yeah, and this is a big concern, and we're bringing it up on the story I'm working on for Seattle Channel this week, because a big part of that is, where do these different people go when they are cleared out, let's say, from Third Avenue? Do they go right up the street? We talked with a representative from the Chinatown ID neighborhood about this because it turns into instantly a race and social justice issue, Omari. When you have something in one neighborhood and you push it out into another, it's not fair for those different neighborhoods that have to sustain that. So I think this is something that really needs to be. And this has been the challenge here. Of course, we talked about this in 2015 with the nine and a half block strategy. Are we doing that all over again? I think that's the big question here that a lot of people are talking about with Operation New Day, as Mayor Harrell calls it. Yeah, the CID, CID gets everything gets swept down there. Yeah, I, I've yet to see a protest because mm. these guys is real good. I'm not talking about like uh, uh, which what we saw downtown yeah. uh, in Westlake, mm -hmm. but even May 29th of 2020, mm -hmm. the Seattle Police Department could have swept protesters north. Maybe, you know what I'm saying? North sure. into Queen Anne or yeah. more north into South Lake Union. Yeah, they swept them into the CID. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Uh, every time. I've yet to see a protest that emanated in downtown Seattle go north. Yeah, It always goes south yeah. into the CID. And the CID, a lot of times, we saw there uh, in 2020, is left in shambles. Yeah, yeah, it can go south in more ways than one. So that's uh, that's that's an important issue to look at. I did want to touch on a couple mm, other sure. things that we're working on this week. Uh, one of them in particular is talking about what happened last week in Staten Island, New York, of historic vote there from a number of Amazon workers. They put together something called the Amazon Labor Union there. They actually voted this into effect. And this was amazing because this was a group that had no support from any of the traditional unions here, very much a grassroots effort. 8,000 people in this warehouse voted for this, 55% of them did. So I think this is something that's gonna send some shock waves around different areas, especially here in Amazon, where the big, excuse me, look at me go there, especially here in Seattle, which is one of the biggest Amazon towns out there, as you know. But in looking at that, how is that going to affect Amazon's business model? They do have until April 8th, which is coming up here on Friday, to challenge this thing. Will they do that? they got some deep pockets to do that legally here. So I'm interested to see what happens next there with Amazon on that. And one last deal I wanted to make sure I let people know about was the pay-up legislation that the city of Seattle has been working on. There will be a press conference tomorrow with Council Members Lewis and Herbold. This is going to go through the Public Safety Committee. The Council Member Herbold uh, heads up the pay-up legislation we're talking about here is specific to app-based uh, workers. If you're a driver for Uber, something along those lines, DoorDash, things along those lines. They're working right now to try to figure out what to do because it was interesting at the state level this year, they passed a minimum wage uh, minimum wage uh, legislation there, some other pieces attached to it too, but they passed some legislation that basically said, okay, not only are we establishing this minimum wage, but these other cities can't do anything to pile on on top of that. So I'm very interested to see what the city of Seattle is going to do with this because this is legislation that the city has been talking about for the past several years. Will they be able to do something within this new framework that has been passed by the state? This was something that was brokered by Uber, Lyft, these big hitters out there because they really wanted to make sure that they kept their business model. They didn't want these people that work for them to be classified as employees. They wanted to keep them as independent contractors. That's the key to all this. And I, I really am interested to see how the city of Seattle is going to move forward with this because this has been a big issue in Seattle uh, for the last several years. 
Yeah, no, it has. And yeah, you'll, you'll keep us posted on this. We'll right? do for sure. That's an interesting no, one this week. You know, I mean, I used to drive Uber and Lyft, yeah. you know, trying, trying to get this, this thing off the ground. Yep. You yep, know what I'm yep. saying? And the house that Uber built. Look yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> the house that, there, there it is. Yeah. You know, and yeah, it was just very, that was an interesting time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Meet some interesting folks. I know that too, but that's the whole thing. There are a lot of people who do that work here in the yeah. city of Seattle. Do they want that flexibility of being an independent contractor? That's what the company's saying. But do they want to make sure there are certain guarantees to it? There's a lot of different trade-offs with this. It's going to be interesting to see how the city inserts itself in this. All right, good stuff. So I know you're on air here tonight at 7 yep, yep. p.m., but mm -hmm. how can people keep up with you? Make sure you're watching tonight's Seattle News Views and Brews right here on Converge at 7 o'clock. Check me out, if you would, on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, I should say. It's at Callanan Seattle, at Callanan 13 on Instagram. And if you would mind, check out Seattle News Views and Brews right here on Converge. You can watch it on any podcast uh, platform you might have there. And it's great, once again, to be with you, Omari. Thank you. All right. Brian Callanan, thank you for joining us. All right. Cool. See you next time. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break right now. Trey Holiday returns to the set. You're watching the Morning Update Show. All right, you see it right there. Feel Good Friday with Trey Holiday. It's going to be a nice Friday, right? Yeah, it's going to be a great Friday. Uh, you know, we're packing it in. I mean, Feel Good Friday, people are starting to reach out. So we're going to have several guests. I can't wait. You guys, Friday's going to be good. All right, a few things before we get out of here. Um, the call for art. Beloved, beloved call for art. I'll see Mr. Delgado scroll up there and put it up on the screen. Nope, that's not the call for art. Mm. Mm. Ah, somebody's on Instagram over there. there huh? <laughs> There's a call for art. Want to remind everybody, beloved campaign. They're doing. They're doing the call for art that ends on the fifteenth, and we'll put we'll put a link in there. I'm actually we'll link from our website as well, um, man. And they're really looking for artists that have been impacted, transformed through through gun violence. How is how they've taken? I like how. Um, who was it? Soma said yeah. they're taking the negative in their heart and putting beauty on paper. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I want to say, I know we're going to be hearing a lot about this uh, during beloved takeover week next week, but you know, this is really about anybody. They are accepting, you don't have to be a full blown artist. If you just want to write a poem, if you just want to do a soliloquy, do a monologue, whatever it is, they're, they're like really accepting a wide range of, um, of, of, of applications and of suggestions. Um, um, I, this is something that I think is really needed for people to, that have really been impacted to be able to pour themselves into something that's artistic. Yeah, no, for sure. Definitely check that out. And tomorrow, tomorrow we're joined by our very own Julia Jesse. She's going to be tapping in. Julia Jesse hosts Clapback Culture. We heard from Mike today. We hear from Julia tomorrow. And that's going to be a good show tomorrow at 7 p.m. Clapback Culture. Yeah, absolutely. It is. You know, uh, again, shout out to those guys for always being on it. And this was a great show right here. I mean, we were able to carry that conversation through uh, to Mike, really, and, and to Brian. I mean, it's, it's a great thing to always on Wednesdays to hear from both of them. Yeah, I, and I was just telling Brian Counter when he was leaving the studio, I said, man, we got to get you and Mike together in here. I think that they bounce off each other well. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Perspective. We're a bit over time, Trey Holiday. Any last words before we get out of here? Oh, for me, always see yourself as a part of the solution. It's necessary. Uh, right now, we're in such a transformative time where all of the suggestions can really help to better us if we can get away from some of those old antiquated ideas of what we are as a society. See yourself as a part of the solution it's an amazing thing to do yes it is yes it is all right well man another great show in the books hello mr switcher hello mr director <sighs>
Yeah. You're tripping. <laughs> That's definitely you. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. You good? All right. Well, <laughs> on that note, <laughs> that we're on the wide. Want to remind everybody, go forward in your purpose, go forward in your humanity, and until tomorrow at 11 a.m. Peace. Peace. Converge Media produces culturally relevant content for Black and urban audiences. Our coverage is raw, transparent, and objective, praised by community leaders, government officials, and residents. Support Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.